And this week on Verity, we have advocate Mark Oppenheimer. Welcome, Mark. Thanks Thank for you. Having me. And I mean, the first question one has to say is: um, Are you the only advocate with that, those luscious locks? I'm the only advocate that looks this gorgeous. And and a question from the people: um, When last did you cut your hair? Two weeks ago. Oh, right. Only this much. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Mark, we've been friends for a few a few years now, and I thought it would be good to have you in to discuss two distinct topics. Uh, especially related to the current South African political climate. One is expropriation without compensation, and the other is a hate speech bill that's floating around that seems to be making waves and that will might be passed quite soon. So the first half of this conversation will be expropriation without compensation. So I spoke to an international journalist on, on the Renegade Report, my other podcast, and they were under the illusion that a law was passed and land was being expropriated as we speak. I told him, no, that's not the case. But for those who might be a bit unsure about what exactly happened in that motion, can you explain what is happening from now on or once the motion has been passed? Sure. So what the motion does really is that it sets up an exploratory committee. So it's a constitutional review body. Um, it is meant to come to some sort of decision about what steps should be taken by August. The idea is that there will be a public participation process as well. So civil society can get together and contribute to this and discuss whether there ought to be expropriation without compensation. Um, there, you, you couldn't currently pass legislation that would allow that because our constitution does not allow for expropriation without compensation. Yeah. So section 25 of our constitution is the property clause. It firstly says you cannot arbitrarily be deprived of property. Okay? But it recognizes that um, the state may need to um, expropriate property for public purposes. And so I'll give you an example. Let's say the, the Caltrain project. Sure. Okay, so you're building this gigantic infrastructure. It's a public good. Um, you, you're going to need to go through some private land. Um, and so the state should have the power to expropriate, but it must pay those people for their land. Certainly. I mean, expropriation is not a weird, rare concept. It happens all the time in the most liberal democracies in the world. Uh, and it's a it's a function of the state uh, who has a popular mandate to do certain things. So to build roads, uh, nuclear reactors, docks. It's normal. Expropriation is a normal part of living in a democracy, one would think. Yes, um, but it must always be kind of countervailed with the sense of when you deprive someone of their property rights, they must be justly compensated or else it's just theft. Sure. And so what the Constitution does as well is it gives you indicators of what you must take into account when determining this compensation. So things like the market value, the use of the land, um, whether the person had received prior state, state subsidies. Yeah. Now, you could wind up in a situation where it's possible that the land that you take winds up having no value whatsoever, no economic value, it couldn't be sold to anyone. Um, maybe that person had already received a state subsidy and so that's going to you know, be set off against it. Um, or it's a valueless thing given the, the size of it. So you could wind up with instances where land is taken away and no one is paid for it, but really because the land itself is just valueless. Right, so the compensation is null. Yes. So the, the compensation can be zero. Exactly, right. yeah, exactly. That's a very popular uh, argument from academics, I've noticed lately. Yes. So the compensation, you can leave the constitution as it is, section 25 as it is, and you can just make compensation null. So this is Jackie Dugard's view. She says, you know, this is one thing you could do, in other words, in the existing framework. But now, it's not a matter of... So, 
those cases are going to be rare. We must acknowledge that from the get-go. Yeah, I agree. Land generally is worth money, okay? So there may be these fringe cases where the compensation is zero or small. Um, but in most cases where the land is valuable, you know, you should receive financial compensation. Sure. So, so first, we, so we know what the framework is. What, what we're really looking at is there's, there's going to be this exploratory body. It would have to change the constitution um, in order to allow for expropriation without compensation. Okay, so that's the sort of legal stuff. We've got to ask ourselves, well, what would these effects be? You know, um, what's the economic sort of uh, effect on this? And so Ramaphosa says something quite interesting, which is that we should explore this path in a manner that doesn't affect food security and doesn't harm the economy and doesn't harm growth. Okay. So to my mind, it's something like this. It's saying, you know, I am uh, a devout celibate, and, uh, but I really want to try this sex thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, you've got to choose. You know, you, you can't start stripping yes. people of their property rights and keep the economy going and keep food security going. You've got to pick. And unfortunately, um, well, fortunately, we have um, history to kind of as a guideline to see what happens when you do this. We don't have to look very far uh, back into the past or very far geographically. We can look a few hundred kilometers up from us into Zimbabwe and see what happened when you started seizing land. Yeah, and, and I think that is a viable uh, example. Yes. A lot of you are saying, oh, no, but, you know, this is different. Um, no, no, no. It's, it's it's a perfectly viable example because with due respect to the ANC in this case, they haven't painted themselves in glory for being uh, prudential or accountable in, in, in ways that assuage my fears, so to speak. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cadre deployment and corruption is endemic within it. So why would this be any different at I don't know. They're not going to become angels overnight when it comes to expropriation, I would yes, suspect. Exactly. So this idea that this land is going to be handed out to the poor and the needy, you know, um, you know, chat to the Zimbabweans that are living in South Africa now, the poor Zimbabweans who fled their country because of, you know, the, the world's worst hyperinflation and an utterly destroyed economy, okay, they said they didn't get into that land. The people that got the land were friends of Mugabe. Indeed. You know, um, you know loyal members of ZANU-PF. Those are the guys who got free farms. Um, they didn't have the capacity to run the farms because turns out farming's a technical thing. Right? Well, I keep, I keep making this argument and uh, many people like to disagree with me, but farming is sort of a, not a science by any means, but very close by. You need to know what on earth you're doing. I mean, I grew up on a farm. We didn't farm ourselves, but our neighbor was a farmer and the neighbors were farmers. And they could explain to you rainfall patterns, Latin names for species of, of, of uh, trees, what the trees do, are these trees important, are these not important, um, different types of wheat. Like it was, you learn a hell of a lot living next door to a farm to see what is actually required to be a successful farmer. And it's sure. a hell of a lot of work. It's an enormous amount of work which requires an enormous amount of expertise. It's also very expensive. If someone said to me, I'm going to give you a farm now, I would say no, because it would cripple me financially. You know, there's this old story about how do you make a small fortune from a wine farm? You start with a big fortune. Right. You know, Same with divorce, I think. <laughs> how did the wife make her husband a millionaire? He started off a multi-millionaire. Yeah, she, she, married, him, she married him when he was a billionaire. Something to that effect. <laughs> But yeah, I think Michael, your darling, who owns a wine farm, ex CEO of FMB, had the same thing. He's like, you know, that's how you make a profit from a wine farm. You, you yeah, make yeah. money way beforehand. <laughs> yeah, so it's a hard thing. I mean, the other thing is, if we started seizing this land, you know, we're looking at 
the farmers don't own these things outright. You know, the banks have equity, I think, to the tune of 160 billion rand. Yeah. So if you just start seizing this farmland, that's going to have a ripple effect um, <coughs> across the economy because who's going to pay this debt to the bank? You know, so there's the government know, will. Don't you know, Mark? The government will do everything in this regard. Well, the government's line is without compensation. So in other words, the bank is the, let's say, oh, that's true. in a way, the partial owner of this property. So the bank's not going to receive any compensation either, um, which means they've now got to spread this difficulty, this 160 billion rand amongst you and I, you know. Right. Um, so there's that concern. I think we then need to turn to this moral question about land distribution. So firstly, there's the restitution question, okay, mm -hmm. which is, in other words, um, land was stolen from you during apartheid. Um, it undoubtedly is the case that it should be restored to you or you should be compensated for that. And I think I think everyone that I know, even those that are considered extremely right-wing, agree with that statement. I don't know anyone who would necessarily disagree with that. Yes. I mean, that's what justice requires. Sure. Which is that if something has been taken from you unjustly, it should be restored to you. Okay. Now, what's interesting about this is I think we... I brought this, uh, this little book with me. It's the... South African survey produced by the Institute for Race Relations. Right. Oh, so you got the one from 2016. Uh, yeah. I, got, I got the one from 2017. I should have bought it. <laughs> updated figures. Yes. But uh, for anyone listening, it's a phenomenal book. It's a phenomenal book. And so, so often our, our discourse is about ideological positions as opposed to facts. Right. And I think it's very important that we just bear in mind what the numbers really are. So, let me tell you a couple of interesting things. So, firstly... Of the claims, how many claims do you think have been resolved? In other words, people who had their land taken from them and it's now been restored to them either in the form of the land or in form of financial compensation. Mark, you speak, I mean, with due respect, you're speaking to someone who, who knows these answers, <laughs> uh, but the, 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 the overwhelming majority of them. Yeah. So as a viewer at home, give it a little bit of thought, thucks up a number. I normally get very low estimates. Okay. Turns out it's 1.8 million people. Okay. Now, there are only 55 million South Africans. So you're talking about roughly one in 25 people, okay, mm. got, a, got a land restitution. Let's put this in percentage terms or to get a sense of, well, how much of the job has been done. Well, there are only 3,500 outstanding claims left. 97% of claims have been resolved. Indeed. So when it comes to, was your land taken from you? Have you been compensated? We can say 97% of the time, yes, that's happened. Okay. So that's the sort of justice aspect of it to say you were wrongly deprived of property it must be restored to you and we've done actually quite a good job on that front and i would think the anc would crow about this you would think so um, yeah. so what a couple of interesting things about this is that often when people are given the choice between the the land and the money they take the money sure okay now there's good reasons why one would take the money which is that money is freedom you can spend the money on the things that you want to do so instead of having this piece of land out in a rural area that's away from your job and you know your family and your friends you can rather take the money and you can start a business or you can you know buy land in a spot that, that suits you so overwhelmingly it's the case that people want the money the other thing we must bear in mind is when you ask people about the land question okay um, and you ask them that question about what are what are the other issues that you care about so race relations goes and polls people and says what are the things you're most concerned about in the country? What's the burning question for you? Large numbers of people say unemployment, safety and security, uh, health. Okay. At 2%, land. Mm. So we're not talking about a burning question. 
It's clearly a burning question for politicians because it's you know wielded around like an axe. Indeed. But average South Africans really don't care about it. Yeah, and, and the point is to show there's no popular mandate for this uh, expropriation no. of that conversation. None, none whatsoever. It is a completely fictional mandate by mm-hmm. opportunistic uh, politicians, in my, and I'm being very polite when I say yes, opportunistic. Yeah, totally. No, what you're dealing with is, um, you know, politicians, a very, very small minority with big loud hailers, you know, trumping up this sort of uh, nationalist, often racially sort of motivated stuff. I mean, the kind of things that the EFF say on the issue yeah. um, really do have this smack of racist revenge, you know. Um, and they pretend as if this is something that, you know, needs to happen now because everyone cares about it, you know. And it's a kind of classic totalitarian trick to kind of talk about this emotional issue, you know, the earth and the blood that was shed for the earth and we Indeed. need to reclaim it. And, you know, and the, actually, the identity of the people within it, the identity of the land and the people together is like some, somehow not separable. And yes, if yeah. you don't have the land, you have nothing. And you have yeah, no dignity. No, it's, it's, it's very classical. Exactly. Um, propaganda. So let's look at the sort of second sort of line of argument. If we know that on the restitution line, we've largely solved this problem. The other one is about, well, land ownership. So you kind of hear a few interesting numbers floating around, the idea that, you know, white people own dramatic tracts of land. I think it was 92%. And Dile, unpronounceable surname from Black First Land First said so. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of see these sort of false stats floating around. Um, now, so I'll tell you another interesting sort of stat. Just to get an idea, I, I, I'm personally a a uh, non-racialist, and I think the fact that South Africans keep harping on about racial categories is quite dangerous. But so um, people will call you racist for being a non-racialist. Of course. I mean, uh, I said that too. I said I'm, I'm really, I'm, I care about the character of the person. I mean, if someone is a nasty piece of work, irrespective of the race, they're a nasty piece of work, and I was called a racist for saying that. Sure. Which was sure. lovely. I mean, it's yeah, and a slight departure. This idea that you sure. can. Non-racists think that you ought not to impose burdens or benefits on the grounds of someone's race, indeed, and that you judge them on the content of their character alone. It reminds me of Martin Luther King. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think it reminds us that, that well-known. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that that well-known. I don't know what you call it now. Sellout, I believe, is the term. I'm used. sure something along those yeah. lines. But I think it's yeah. also in the line of uh, the preamble of the Constitution. Yes, Section One of our Constitution says South Africa is a nation founded on the value of non-racialism. You've forgotten this. Who would have thought? Yeah. So having given my little caveat about this, we can have, you know, using these suspicious characters, categories of race, I can give you some sense of what the demographic breakdown is in South Africa, which is that basically 80% of people have been designated or identify as black African, uh, around 10% white, 2.5% Indian or Asian, um, and about 7% um, colored. Mm. Yeah. So let's have a look at home ownership by race. So, 79.1% of homes are owned by black Africans, 6.8% uh, by colored people, 2.5% by Indians, and 11.6% by whites. There's a, there's a discrepancy, Mark. 8% of the population is white, yet 11% of homes are owned by whites. That's why we need to expropriate. So, one could take some sort of line like that, but... It's very far. No, of course. I'm being, completely, I'm being completely facetious. Exactly. And most importantly, I don't know if you check this out, but the African home ownership, 70% of those are debt-free. Yes. So this is other very interesting, actually. It's, it's even higher than that. Um, it's owned and fully paid off for black Africans, 84.5%. Oh, higher than my stats. All right. For whites, take a guess. 43, I believe. 7.8. What? 7.8. Okay. So... 
you really get the sense that actually on levels of ownership, um, there's almost perfect representation on demographic lines. Sure. Now, I'm not saying you need to have perfect representation, but that's often a sort of line is to say, well, the numbers are so out of kilter with you know, our, our race demographics. Sure. And, and, and importantly, this is, this is residences, not tracts of land. Yes, yeah. Right. So we're talking it's about homes. home ownership, right? Which, as we say, is the thing that people actually care about, you know. Um, Indeed. But if we talk about tracts of land as well, so we can say a couple of things on that, which is that the state we know owns 17 million hectares, roughly 14 percent of the land that's floating around, and there's another 8 million hectares which is unaccounted for. Okay, so we don't know who owns it. So we we, we lost the land some way, or. It's probably probably poor record keeping, so yes. there's a good good chance that a fair chunk of this is actually owned by the state, and that the municipalities haven't sort of kept good records on. Yeah, they haven't owned it correctly or anything yes, to exactly. that effect. Yeah, yeah. And, and knowing municipalities as not being the bastions of efficiency, yes, that's a good suspicion yeah. to have. So the idea that you know we urgently need to take privately owned land from let's say fully functioning farmers, um, because where else would we get it from? Well, that's also just not the case. The state has plenty of land. If it wants to redistribute and it feels that poor, vulnerable people could do with more land, well, then they have the resources that's available. They can start doing that. Right. Um, so the Free Market Foundation takes this view that really what we should be striving for, more property rights. Okay. And so you've got plenty of poor, vulnerable South Africans who are tenants uh, on RDP homes, and they don't have title. Indeed. And so there's a big push to try and say, well, these guys should be given title deeds. And the advantage of having title to the place you've been living in for the last 20 years is that in the last 20 years, your job might have changed. Um, you might have to do these crazy long treks to get to work. Um, you might want to be able to borrow on your house that you can start a small business. Yeah. The other thing that you find um, is that people's attitude towards their property shifts if they're a renter or an owner. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, go to Cape Town, rent a car, Mark. Do you drive it like it's your own car? Sure, right? I mean, you know, rent, you? rental cars always go much faster. Right? <laughs> Especially <laughs> the one-liter Hyundai i10. Those are the fastest cars I've ever been in. Um, but yeah, there's this great saying that you know, when when people rent, they you know they come home with uh, you know a bag full of beer, um, but when they own, they come home with a bag full of paint. You know, right. that they're invested in their properties and they care about them. Of course. Now we've been talking thus far a little bit about this idea of like farmland, okay? But that's not really what the EFF's calling for. What they're calling for is all property to be owned by the state. Okay. Not just white people's property, everyone's property. Yep. Black, white, poor, rich, whatever, the state owns all of it. Okay. And the idea is that you will then be granted a license, which they say should be kept at 25 years, to use one of these properties. Yeah. And then, and then they shield it and they say, no, you won't lose your house. You just won't own the land on which it's on. Yes. Okay, so, okay, so you, I mean, you won't lose your car, you just won't have any wheels, you won't have any <laughs> tires, so, but you still got the car. Sure. You just can't go anywhere with it. Yeah, yeah. So you'll have this idea of the state acting as the custodian, you know, on all land. Um, now, maybe you'll call me cynical, um, that maybe, you know, states have shown themselves across the world to not always have the best interests of citizens in mind, that under this extreme communist position, and that's undoubtedly what it is, right, oh, yeah. with the idea that no one has property rights, only the state, it tends to be the case that if you're a loyal member of the movement, you get to rent a really nice piece of property. 
you know, so we you get put up in this great mansion. Yeah, I mean, um, somehow Clifton and Westcliff, there's always like the same people who, have, who get the you know renewal of leases there for some reason. Yeah, and, yeah. and you and I are shifted from uh, from Edenvale to Bloemfontein to who knows where else. You know, every 25 years, it's, it's quite strange. <laughs> well, I have a feeling that our leases would would suddenly become much more temporary as well. Um, and what you find in these regimes, and we find within the ANC and the EFF, is this huge amount of backbiting and factionism. Mm. So you think about someone like Trotsky, who was a loyal member of the communist movement, wound up with an ice pick in his head. You know, I'm sure at some point, you know, the the lovely um, piece of property that he was granted by the beneficent state was taken from him because he had to flee to Mexico, right? Right. So the idea that you know your loyalty will always be in check. You know, have you really done enough for our loyal movement lately? You know, are you yeah. voting in the right direction? And really, this is just a dangerous, dangerous case. Of course it's dangerous, but it's also, so the EFF is also assuming that somehow, A, they will get power one day, and B, that it will last forever. Yes. What happens if the DA wins? Sure. And then they can, you know, gerrymander who gets the leases when and where. And it's not going to be the DA suffering, it's going to be the EFF suffering under their own policy. So politicians, when drafting laws, <coughs> should think of them as weapons. Weapons which they don't get to hold on forever which will eventually be held by their enemies. And to say, am I comfortable with the opposition having this power, this weapon that they can beat me over the head with? And if I'm not, well, then I probably shouldn't create it in the first place. Well, I, I think that's a very good principle, generally speaking. Yes. If you have this idea about society that you wish to impose, just give it to your worst enemy. Yeah. And would you want it, it to be imposed on you by someone who is extremely malevolent? Yes, so the idea is to say, I'm sure the ANC really has the best interests of the populace at heart. You know, I know that they're motivated by great ideals, but what if the wrong faction takes over? Indeed. What if the opposition parties take over? How are they going to use these weapons, you know? Um, so, yeah, we must always be sort of wary of things that grant the state a lot of power and intrude on the rights of, of citizens. So what we have concluded is that more black Africans own their homes than any other racial group, 80% of them do, they have no debt on those homes. Um, there's practically parity in terms of home ownership. Uh, land is, la well, agricultural land or what do you call it, um, empty, so to speak, land is, well, the state owns 14% of it. Uh, so if this does go through, expropriate other compensation, the people who will be the most uh, deprived are black Africans. Well, I, I think in a number of ways. So we're talking about, you know, the stats say it's um, 7.8 um, million black Africans who own houses who are mm. going to, you know, if it's, a, in other words, seized by the state, they're going to lose it. Sure. So whereas opposed to the sort of 1 million, I think, white homeowners. So you definitely have this differential effect. Yeah, but the white owned, but the banks have security on those white homeowners, so to speak. So well, the banks the, will lose out. The banks will lose out because, as you say, um, the, the stats say that white people don't actually have that much equity in their homes. The banks have the equity. Indeed. Whereas black people are 85% of those homes. It's full ownership. So, yeah, there's that concern. But there's the other concerns, which is, as I say, even if you didn't own a farm in Zimbabwe, after land, after land seizures happened, it's crushed the economy. You know, think about if you're an international investor, do you want to – and you can – we always think – well, their choice is to you know, invest in South Africa or not invest in South Africa. No, no. Their choice is to invest in one of the 186 countries in the world and Indeed. to work out what's best going to maximize their profits. Um, and you know, is it going to be a secure investment? 
you know, if I said to you, well, you can invest with us, but there's a pretty good chance that we're going to, you know, seize all your money. What are the chances that you're going to invest in them? You'd much mm. rather go and invest in the sort of spot that's going to secure your property rights. Yeah, somewhere like Chile or Eastern Europe, which is just as cheap sure, to set sure. up shop. But your uh, potential could be quite high there. Yeah, but it's yeah. much higher than in South Africa. I mean, that's the thing as well. South Africa is not an important country in the world. You know, we, we, we do have this sense of arrogance about ourselves. Totally. But our economy is 0.25%. Like it's a rounding error of the global economy. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the last question on this really is, if this had to go through as our worst fears, will the constitutional court even look at this and say, what rubbish? This, because, is, this is an interesting problem. Because I know a bit of case law, and for example, they said the state can be the custodian of mining, of mineral rights, of mining, of licenses to deal with diamonds, for example. So the courts are not against the notion of the state being a custodian because they don't see it as the state taking ownership mm. even though this is the discrepancy is quite slight in my opinion so I mean I don't think this will go through in any way as intended by the EFF but if the court had to be a barrier do you think it will be? Okay so I'll say a couple of things one is as you say reference the Agres A case it's authored by Chief Justice McQueen and he looks at this question of whether the state can be the custodian of minerals um and argues for a number of reasons that minerals are a special case and that the state can be custodian. He specifically says this could not be extended to other areas. It must always be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. Right. It doesn't make the claim that it could extend to all property. Now, a couple of years ago, the Department of Trade and Industry produced a piece of legislation, or well, a bill, called the Promotion and Protection of Investment Bill, which tried to make all property um, capable of being um, controlled by the state as custodian. Now, this custodian, but the idea is because they're not owner mm. and they're not taking ownership, they don't have to pay compensation. Now, there was quite a bit of pushback, and ultimately the DTI removed those clauses from the from from the legislation. Now, let's say this this committee, um, after it makes its findings in August, um, despite what I imagine will be a huge outcry from the international community and from civil society here about the enormous damage that it would do to our economy and to the poor in particular, decide we're going to change the Constitution. Now, there's one line of argument which is to say that because Section 1 of our Constitution says that South Africa is a nation founded on the idea of the rule of law, okay, Martin Starden at the Free Market Foundation has written a piece saying, well, the rule of law must by necessity include property rights. Now, the thresholds for changing portions of the Constitution are different. So for that first section of the Constitution, we have a heightened threshold of 75%. For the Bill of Rights, it's 66%. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's quite possible that an alliance with the ANC and the EFF could lead to that Bill of Rights change, to, in other words, remove the sections of the Constitution that prevents the state from arbitrarily depriving people of their property rights. Now, maybe there's an argument to be said that actually they need to meet this high threshold because it's so deeply connected to the rule of law. But let's say they did do that. Well, then I would say at that point that the Constitutional Court can only but implement the law as it stands. There is no hidden ideal Constitution sitting behind our text, um, and the protections would fall away. Mm. That's different if, let's say, they fail to change the Constitution, produce some sort of expropriation bill that made no mention of compensation then the Constitutional Court would say, clearly unconstitutional, and you right. have some basis for invalidating the legislation. Right. So if the Constitution is changed, which is 
which is hard but not impossible. Exactly. I mean, it's still not uh, given at this stage. So if the constitution is changed, the constitutional court doesn't actually have a say. Yes. At the end of the day, uh, but if there's a if they can't change the constitution, but they still proceed with the legislation that acts as if there is expropriation or the compensation, obviously the constitutional court will put it into that. Well, one would hope. One would hope. Exactly. You see, it's not it's not straightforward. I mean, people love the constitutional court when it tells him he's being a naughty boy, but personally, in terms of ideology, they 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 share quite a lot with the prevailing political narrative. In my opinion, I mean, as an advocate, you don't have to answer me in any single way, but that's just my opinion on the matter. So, yes, Mark, uh, in terms of anxiety, if I may ask, on your side? Well, I'll just say on a personal level, I've been considering um, buying the flat that I rent, and uh, I am much more hesitant about it. And I gather that a lot of people have become very hesitant about purchasing property. And I would imagine, what's interesting is, Shang to someone um, the day after Soren Raposa became president of the country. <coughs> He's a, an attorney at a big firm. He said a whole bunch of international deals that had been on pause for a couple of years suddenly got reignited. They got the calls from international investors saying, yeah. we can see there's been a dramatic shift. We want to do this. We want to invest. We're interested. Okay. And so this Ramaphoria was there for about a week um, before this pronouncement about expropriation of compensation. And it's so counterproductive because... I'm sure all those deals went straight back to being paused. You know, until you have policy certainty on this question, it's very hard for people to want to invest their life savings in property that may be ultimately seized from them. You know, what you require for a growing economy is people to be able to take reasonable risks. Indeed. Um, and if this, the idea is, well, all this could be taken from you, it becomes no longer reasonable to take those risks. Yeah. Um, so hopefully this issue will be resolved um, very rapidly. Um, in the favor of property rights. And I would say that um, civil society organizations need to take this opportunity to participate in this process. Yes, because on our other podcast, we also said, you know, this is a a good time to galvanize and actually make your voice heard. It is. How do people go about doing that? So I think it hasn't been made entirely clear how the formalities are going to work. But I would think that if we think about another analogy, which is when a bill is produced by parliament, there's a public participation process. Yes. Um, that people are able to write submissions, that we'll be looking at something similar to that. So I think what we need are people from different kinds of sectors. So I would say we need economists to talk about what would the impact on our economy be, how would this affect um, you know, jobs and growth and things like that, how is it? How have these plans worked around the world. Um, I think we need to um, think about the technical legal questions that are at stake here, um, and we might want to think about some of the sort of social fabric problems that we're having as well, you know, that we really, because there's so much racial invective here, yeah. um, that, you know, if whites are sort of posed as these um, wealthy capitalist pigs who own all the property, who are, you know, um, lording it over, you know, poor black peasants, um, you know, that kind of thing, eventually you say that that false narrative enough, yeah. um, and it can lead to outbreaks of violence. And so what we want, as I say, what I've tried to do is ground this conversation in evidence and say, well, let's really look at the true state of affairs instead of whipping up this emotional frenzy. And so I think it would be important for people to talk about that as well in the submission process, you know, that there's dangers in the rhetoric itself. Indeed. And you don't have to do it personally. You can just support those organizations that will make presentations. Yes. So I know uh, Forum are doing it, I believe. Free Market Foundation will probably do it. Institute of Race Relations, AgriSA, I would suggest, would do it too. And I'm sure there's some sort of 
um, this is South African Property Owners Association of sorts, which exists as well. So and just support those organisations as well. I mean, they may they do good work. Some of them, and, yeah. Uh, they deserve and there's that different support. ways to lend support, either through financial contributions, right. or through particular expertise, um, or just spreading the message, right? Mm. And to say, hey, this is an important issue, um, and countering this sort of tide of uh, you know kind of racist theft rhetoric that's been going on. Right. I mean. Personally, I think this is the most important issue since '94, ever. It's I've I've never been more. I'm not uncomfortable as a person, but I've never been more uncomfortable as a South African mm. than after that vote was passed. Sure, it's uh, yeah, extremely important. Yeah, and we must remind ourselves that you know these things can happen very quickly. You yeah, know, once you start taking away rights, you, know, you think about what happens in a country like Venezuela, which has the fourth biggest supply of oil in the world and was an incredibly prosperous country you know once you started instituting these communist style reforms i mean there's this famous picture of a of a guy being arrested in venezuela and he's being patted down by the police and they've got these bags of white powder on him so you think oh well venezuela must be cocaine no it's flour uh, he was being arrested for illicitly making cakes because the state should own all the stuff and it should be used for bread yeah you know this gives you an idea of the kinds of scarcity that you create when when you have these sort of totalitarian communist regimes. There's prisons in Venezuela where they ran out of food and prisoners ate each other. You know, you have massive food protests. If you think about the the uprisings and in Arab Spring, a lot of that stuff was caused by shortages of food. Food inflation, yeah. yeah especially you know. the price of bread and yeah. wheat. So, you know, it's a dangerous game to play, especially when you start messing with farmers, when you mess with the economy, you know, it can lead to all sorts of other violent outbreaks and a collapse of a state. You know, so we need to guard against that. That's why I'm worried. But nevertheless, there's time to fight. Mark, thank you. Absolutely. And pleasure. for our listeners, in part two, Mark will stay with us. We're actually going to talk about hate speech bull. More fun stuff. Excellent. See you then. <laughs>